Well, I love it when the children sing. I love every aspect of it, even their entrance um, and their exit. Even that is good as the line when they come in just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. And the line takes forever to go out. What a blessing that is for our church. Well, we are glad to have another opportunity to study God's Word. That's at the center of all we do, of course. It is the inspired Word of God. and uh, We find in Christ and in His Word everything we need for life and godliness to live a life that pleases Him. So what a joy it is to study His Word together this morning. I was heavily involved in Boy Scouts as a kid, at least up until high school. And I am grateful for all the many life skills I learned through scouting, how to read and follow a compass, and how to tie various kinds of knots, of course. And I learned some important survival skills at at the various and many campouts that I enjoyed. I also learned some basic aspects of leadership. I learned the importance of being servant-minded. I definitely have fond memories of our scoutmaster, a man named Mr. Powell, who genuinely cared about the 20 to 30 boys in our troop, Troop 229. I remember it as if it was yesterday. I still remember the scout oath and the scout law because we recited them so many times, but no doubt what's easiest to remember is the Boy Scout motto. Just two words, be, some of you know that, be prepared. There's a little song that goes with it. I'm not going to sing it for you. I could. This little motto was devised in 1907 by a man from England. He was an English soldier named Baden Powell. He developed this little motto, simple words, be prepared, because his belief was that Boys, as they grow into men, these scouts should prepare themselves for any situation that may arise and be ready to help others in need. Even the Eagle Scout medal, the Eagle Scout is the highest honor in scouting, even that medal only has two words on it, be prepared. Well, the Bible actually teaches this same concept the need to be prepared for the future. But the Bible's emphasis on a topic like this is not on physical preparedness, although Paul wrote that bodily discipline does profit a little. The Bible's emphasis is not on financial preparedness, although in Scripture, especially in Proverbs, we find Certainly some important financial principles that we should seek to live by, but those are not the emphases in Scripture. Instead, the Bible's emphasis when it comes to being prepared for the future, especially what we find in the New Testament, is on being spiritually prepared to face whatever challenges this world throws our way, whatever challenges come to us because of the pagan, ungodly culture that we live in. We're not taught in Scripture to seek to escape it all. We're taught to be prepared, spiritual preparedness. Now, our next passage in our study of this book called 1 Thessalonians is still in chapter 5. You'll remember that's where we left off. Our next passage in chapter 5 is an example of that emphasis 
of spiritual preparedness. I've entitled the sermon, uh, Wake Up, but I could have just as easily entitled it, Be Prepared. Now today, we're just going to look at verses 6 through 8, and in these two These three verses, we find two important requirements for being spiritually prepared. Here's the first one. It's the need to be vigilant. The need to be vigilant. Verse 6 is where we are, 1 Thessalonians 5. It begins this way, So then, let us not sleep as others do. Now, those opening two words, so then, those are important words. They're connecting words. They obviously take what we're studying now, but they point us back to what's already been said in the previous two verses, verses 4 and 5. You'll remember in our last sermon that we studied those two verses, and there we found a contrast depicted, a contrast between two realms. There's the realm of darkness, and there's the realm of light. There's only two spiritual realms. Those verses also call it the realm of day and the realm of night. Unbelievers, those who are not followers of Christ, those who have never come to a place in their life where they've understood the gospel message and that they needed to have their sins forgiven so they could have the gift of eternal life, if they've never come to Christ seeking that forgiveness and to follow Him as their Lord and Savior, they live every day in the realm of darkness. It's intellectual darkness because they're not agreeing with and believing the truth, and it's moral darkness. And because of that, if they die in that state, then they face the judgment and wrath of God. The true believers are in the other realm. True believers live in the realm of enlightenment, spiritual enlightenment, because we have the truth of Scripture, and we believe and understand the truth. We live in the realm of of moral holiness, spiritual holiness, the realm of light. So then, those two connecting words tell us that now we come to the logical and necessary conclusion to what was said about those two realms. To put it another way, there is an inseparable link between the nature of people and their behavior. That's a bottom line principle. What people are determines how they live, how they act. So for Christians, believers... We are people who have been called out of that realm of darkness. We've been transplanted into the realm of light. And because that's who we are, we should live accordingly. Now, that's something that's taught throughout Scripture. Just a few more verses from the New Testament we have. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12 comes to mind. Walk in a manner worthy. And walk, you'll know, in Scriptures is used to refer to our our lifestyle. Walk, live in a manner worthy of the God who called you. He called you out of darkness into His kingdom and glory, the kingdom of light. Philippians 1.27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The gospel, the news about who God is and what He's done through Christ to pay for sin and how to have salvation, forgiveness of sin and in Him and to live forever eternally with Him in heaven, we came to believe the gospel, so we should conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of what we say we believe. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, and then it defines it just a little bit. That means to seek to please Him in all respects. We want to bear fruit in every good work. We want to increase in the knowledge of God. 
All of that pleases him, and that's evidence we're walking in a manner that's worthy of who we are. Now, we are those, then, are in light. We, according to like John chapter 3, it says we've been born again or born from above. We were born spiritually dead, but when we came to Christ, it's because we, we received new life, spiritual life, born again. And we're given a new nature, but we face a challenge every day. That new nature is incarcerated, if you will, in sinful human flesh, our, our, not just our human bodies that fail us, but even just our unredeemed humanness that we live with until we're glorified someday. And there's a battle then between who we are as these unredeemed humans as far as our humanness goes, the flesh, and our new nature that's been given to us. There's a battle between the two. And there are those moments where we as Christians who are people in the light, we can think and commit deeds that are associated with that realm of darkness. And that's why there are commands in Scripture to tell us how to live. That's why Paul is exhorting here in this passage, exhorting believers to live consistently with their new natures. That's what God expects of His people in a broken world. We're to avoid thinking and living according to spiritual and moral darkness. Now, it is this idea then of darkness, spiritual and moral darkness, you could even say spiritual permissiveness, that is captured now in verse 6 in another term, It says, let us not sleep as others do. That word sleep. This word sleep, we've seen at least the English word we've seen before in 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 4, you know, it was used as as a synonym for physical death. Those who have died, it says those who have fallen asleep. But this is a different Greek word behind this English word here. This is a different word. Now it's a word sleep that's being used symbolically to denote indifference to spiritual things, an insensitivity to spiritual realities, an insensitivity to moral things and spiritual things, the things of God. And the point is that this inattention to spiritual priorities and a neglect of spiritual priorities, it's it's a Appropriate to those who are in the realm of darkness, that's who they are. They sleep spiritually. But it's utterly out of keeping for those who have come to the light, those who are not going to be subject to the future coming of the day of God's wrath, the day of the Lord. So it makes sense that unbelievers sleep. Notice what they're called here. They're the others. In 1 Thessalonians, we've seen them called the outsiders. Recently, we saw them referred to with pronouns, they and them, not us. And now they're called the others. They sleep spiritually. They're not asleep to everything. They're awake to the things of the world. They're awake to the priorities of the world. But when it comes to the soul, when it comes to caring about spiritual things and their spiritual life, they're walking around, but they're characterized by lethargy, spiritual lethargy, fast asleep spiritually. They go about their lives living as if they're not accountable to God and as if there's going to be no judgment. One writer put it this way, spiritually, they're alive, but they're in a coma, spiritual coma. Scripture describes unbelievers in a lot of ways, but 
Certainly one of the most common is what we find in Psalm 36, verse 1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And fear of God means a reverence of God, a caring about what God thinks, a God consciousness that we live our lives with. There's none of that before their eyes. So yes, it's expected that they, them, the others, they're indifferent to spiritual things, but that's not fitting for people of the light. It's not fitting for us to think and and, and live as if we're in darkness. In fact, you need to know that this exhortation is put in the present tense in the original language, and that means it's something that we are habitually and consistently and constantly seek to avoid. Daily, hourly, constantly, habitually seeking to avoid falling into this condition of spiritual lethargy and indifference to spiritual things and living by other priorities besides spiritual priorities. One more thing to notice about the grammar is that pronoun us. Paul says, us. He and the other missionaries, Silas, Timothy, he's grouping himself in with the readers, uniting himself with them. They had a need to be warned against yielding to this danger as well. In other words, this warning is for all believers. It doesn't matter our spiritual maturity, our experience. It doesn't matter what our role is in the family of God, the church. We need this warning. In fact, we need to follow this twofold exhortation that comes now. Here's the first part of it we're told to stay alert. Verse 6 goes on and says, Let us be alert. That little conjunction, but, is important. There's a contrast being presented here. There's two Greek words that can be translated, but. This is one stronger than the other one. This is the strong one. But there's a stark contrast between how our lives should be compared to those who are asleep spiritually, the sleeping unbelievers, the ones in the spiritual coma. We must be alert. And that term alert means to be awake, certainly, but it means to be watchful. We have to Watch things. We can't just go through life sleeping. We have to to be looking around always, rightly evaluating what's happening in the world around us and the culture around us, rightly evaluating what's happening in the spiritual dimension around us. It's not talking about making sure you know every baseball player's batting average. I mean, that may be fun to do, but this is talking about evaluation and awareness of the spiritual dimension in our culture. We have to be awake, watchful. We need to be alert, on the alert to sin and temptation that comes our way and alert to unrighteousness in the world. We definitely need to be alert and watchful to the error that exists in the world's way of thinking. It doesn't matter what you read, what you listen to, if it comes from the world, there's error, error mixed in. We need to catch it. Be alert. We need to be watchful so that we're not falling into the world's priorities, so that we're living by spiritual and biblical priorities. And this idea of alertness and watchfulness includes always being alert and watching for and desiring the return of the Lord. Scripture says He's coming again someday. There are verses that remind us of how we ought to long for that. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7. Be awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2, verse 13, Paul wrote to Titus, 
Be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's part of the alertness. And this alertness fits right in with the teaching of Christ himself, especially about future things, eschatological teaching, we would call it. Mark chapter 13 is one example of that. Verses 33 to 37, Jesus himself said, keep on the alert, for you don't know when the appointed time will come, his return. It's like a man. He says, it's like this. It's like a man who goes away on a journey, and he leaves his house, and he he puts his slaves in charge, and he assigns each one a task. And, And the doorkeeper is commanded to stay alert, be watchful. It's like that because the owner's going to come back someday. So he says, therefore, be on the alert. You don't know when the master of the house is coming. And he's referring to himself there. In case he should come and suddenly find you asleep. Be on the alert. So the first half of that exhortation, stay alert. But the second half expands on this idea of watchfulness. Stay sober. Stay sober, verse 6. The watchful person should be sober, and it's a word that means to be in control of all your senses, including your emotions. A believer should be rational, and a believer should be steady, not thrown around like a raft in the ocean that's at the mercy of the currents and the waves but more like a, a ship with a, a rudder and a, and a direction and a map and a, and a sail or an engine that feels the waves, but it stays on course. We're to live our lives that way. It includes being free from the sin of self-indulgence. In fact, this term can be translated self-controlled, stay self-controlled. You could even render this term clear-headed. Stay sober, clear-headed, self-controlled. That's what a sober person is. They exhibit self-control, and as a result, then they live a, they live a serious life. They, they live a balanced life. They live a, a calm, steady life, all the while seeking to maintain clear, spiritual, biblical priorities. And it's such a calm and self-controlled, self-possessed possessed posture that enables them, believers, to effectively face, effectively deal Whatever threats come along, especially spiritual threats. Remember what Peter wrote, 1 Peter 5, verse 8? Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. It's not just Paul that said it. Be on the alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We've got to be alert. We've got to be watchful. We've got to be clear-headed and self-controlled. And this clear-headedness is what assures that we are ready then to meet the Lord when He comes. 1 Peter 1, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in Christ and His promise that He's returning someday and we can live forever with Him. Obviously, there's a balance that's necessary. That's part of the clear-headedness, a balance. On one hand, we're to, to, to look forward to the Lord returning, to be heavenly-minded, as it were, and yet our desire for that 
does not cause us to neglect the many obligations we have still to fulfill here so that we're walking, living in a way that's worthy. So the summary point is this. What brings the sober person, the alert, sober person, the most joy in this life are pleasures that that are related to the soul, spiritual things. Pleasures that are spiritual in nature bring us the most joy. So I don't want you to think that this sober person who's clear-headed and self-controlled and balanced and calm and steady is living a life as if he's a stoic with no joy. On the contrary, he or she seeks to live out spiritual priorities now with a full measure of joy while looking for the return of the Lord, even that with joyful anticipation. So remember, Paul's writing to these Thessalonians. They were all caught up into the future, thinking about the return of the Lord and judgment that was coming, the day of the Lord. They were fearful. There was wild alarm and panic that had set in amongst them because they were thinking wrongly about the day of the Lord. And so to counteract that, Paul is telling them what they needed. They need this self-control, this sobriety. It's true for us too, alertness, sobriety. These are crucial for our Christian lives. Without them, true vigilance is just not possible. And again, the verbs are present tense. We are to seek to continuously be awake, continuously be alert, continuously be sober. Now, Paul wanted to illustrate these exhortations, so he does that now in verse 7, and he appeals to a couple of things just from everyday life to make his point. First, he says in verse 7, for those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Now, this is a third use of the idea of sleep. Here, he's talking about literal sleep. So yes, it's in a context where sleep pictures the spiritual indifference that's fitting to the unbeliever, but there is this normal activity, he says, called sleeping, literal sleeping, that does occur tonight. We associate sleeping with night. When nighttime comes and it's time to go to bed, we are hoping for sleep to come. And the point is this, the same way that sleep is associated, literal sleep is associated with night, so spiritual sleep, indifference to God, that's the natural characteristic of unsaved people who live in the realm of darkness, who live in the night. But the believer is not that person. We don't belong to that realm. So we should be awake and alert and watching and sober, seeking to avoid sin, seeking to avoid spiritual lethargy. But he says, but I've got another illustration. There's another activity that, that sort of goes along with night. He says in verse 7, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. In English, it looks the same, get drunk and get drunk. They're actually two different words. The first one refers to the act of getting drunk, and the second one is the state of being drunk. But the point is, there was this Activity, especially in their culture, that was associated with the night, the idea of spending a whole night in drunken parties and drunken revelry, that was common in, their, in the pagan society in which Paul lived. But even there, it was an activity only associated with night. Even the pagans thought and looked down upon being drunken in broad daylight. No, that's something you do at night. 
So you've got this picture then with sleep and with drunkenness, two things that are often associated with the night. And so he just uses it as an illustration, both of them, to say in the same way, spiritual indifference is associated with something spiritual night. And that indifference is therefore inappropriate for believers because we belong to the day, the light. And then Paul just repeats his exhortation one more time, verse 8, but since we are of the day, let us be sober. We have as a bottom line the obligation to be vigilant. And that means staying alert and self-controlled in our thinking and in our conduct so that we're prepared no matter what happens. There's a second requirement for spiritual preparedness. It's the need to be equipped. The need to be equipped. Now, this second requirement prompted my memories of something that happened in Los Angeles when I was living there. My family, my wife and I were living there with our kids. It happened in 1997. And Pam and I remember it as if it was yesterday. We even talked about it on the way to church this morning. It's a famous bank robbery that occurred in Los Angeles that year. It took place actually not very far from Grace Community Church where I was serving. And I was listening and watching, you know, what was unfolding on the news reports. It was in North Hollywood, which is not far from the church there. And it's called the North Hollywood Shootout. Many of you have heard of that. It was a confrontation. This is what was interesting. It was a confrontation between only two bank robbers and the LAPD, the police force of Los Angeles. But it turned out to be a much bigger tragedy than just a normal shootout with a couple of thieves. Both robbers were eventually killed, but in the process, and it took a while, 12 police officers, 8 civilians were injured. Numerous vehicles and and other property were damaged or destroyed. They said over 2,000 rounds of ammunition were fired by the robbers and the police. And due to all of that, and due to how long it took for the event to unfold and for the police to finally win, its regard is still today as one of the most intense and significant gun battles in U.S. police history. Now, what was the main thing that made it such a significant shootout? It was the difference between the equipment used by the robbers versus what the police were using. The two robbers were firing fully automatic, very high-powered weapons that had been illegally obtained. The police showed up with their standard-issue sidearms, their pistols, 9 millimeters. 38 caliber revolver or two, plus a handful of 12-gauge shotguns that they kept in their patrol cars. In addition, the robbers wore heavy body armor that successfully protected them from all the handgun rounds and even the shotgun pellets. Now, eventually, the LAPD SWAT team arrived with somewhat higher caliber weapons. It still was not enough. They had little effect on the heavy body armor used by the two robbers, perpetrators. I think they call them perps nowadays, perps. It wasn't until, and I remember this as it unfolded in the news, several officers eventually went to a nearby 
firearm, a firearms dealer and started buying more guns, different kinds of guns, equipping themselves. It wasn't until they did that that the tide finally turned and the police were finally able to overcome those two robbers. Here's how you can summarize the problem. The police were woefully under-equipped to deal with that enemy. And due to that singular incident in 1997, a, a, a whole debate and discussion was started, sparked, about the need for patrol officers to upgrade their firepower so that they could be prepared for similar situations in the future. So like I said, this issue surfaced in my memory as I studied this passage, and it connects with verse 8 in our passage because the overall point of the rest of this verse now is that we need to be properly equipped Because we're out there dealing with a satanic onslaught found in our culture, temptations to sin, just due to living in a fallen, broken world. We must be vigilant, but we also must be properly armored. We must be appropriately equipped. And so look at what verse 8 says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, that term having put on is a verbal phrase. It's Paul's favorite way of referring to spiritual armor that Christians need to wear. So here we are waiting for the Lord's return, but while we do that, we're on guard. Why? Because we're actually living in a hostile world. We're living in enemy territory. So we have to be equipped. But you need to know something that's very important about the grammar. I've told you that some verbs have been in the present tense here. Let us be sober That's present tense, habitually do that, but the verbal phrase, having put on, is not. It's in a different tense. That refers to a set, one-time, definite act. So think about the difference. The present tense would make the point that believers are to continually seek to be sober, but the matter of putting on an armor is not to be a continuous, repeated action. We're not to be taking our armor off. We're not to be taking it off and then later putting it back on and stuff like that. No, we're not allowed to ever do that. So a tense is used to indicate this definite act and then keeping it on, and that's an important distinction. Always ready to resist spiritual enemies. So let's look at the armor. The first piece is that breastplate, the breastplate of faith and love. Now, Paul is drawing on his understanding of warfare that day. The soldier would wear armor, a breastplate. So we get that. That's a pretty important piece of armor. It covered the soldier's body from the neck down to his waist, and so it's protecting his vital organs, including his heart. That's where he's most vulnerable. So we might, we might think of it as an equivalent to a, a modern-day uh, armor suit or a bulletproof vest, if you will. But here it's used figuratively. It's a spiritual breastplate. This spiritual breastplate that consists of faith and love. Those are Christian virtues, and both are indispensable for our security against spiritual assault. First one, faith, is referring to our just ongoing inner attitude toward the Lord captured in our word trust. It's referring to trusting God. 
We are to trust in everything Scripture says about God. We trust in His power. We trust in all His promises. We trust in His sovereign plan for all things that He's working out. And He is completely trustworthy. He's trustworthy in all He says, trustworthy in all He does, even if we don't understand it sometimes. People may ask me, what's God doing? I don't know that, but I know Him. I know His character, and I trust that. Because he will never deviate from his character. He'll never deviate or act inconsistently with his nature as it's revealed in Scripture. And his power is unlimited. And his promises are trustworthy. And his sovereign plan, nothing can hinder it or halt it. So many verses about that in Scripture. Here's a few. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And everything He does is right and good and just. Psalm 40 describes how he, he, he looks at the nations that rise up against him and promote ungodliness. And it says, eh, all the nations are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. It's he who sits above the circle of the earth. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. I'm so glad of that. And his understanding is inscrutable. He's never perplexed. And the best part, it's that God who gives strength to the weary. Isaiah 43, verse 13, even from eternity I am he, and there's none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it? Nobody. In the New Testament, Ephesians 1, he works all things after the counsel of his will, his perfect will. So yes, we must trust God. We can trust God. And it is this faith, this trust in God that's part of the defense against the onslaught of wickedness, even the defense against temptation to sin. And we put that breastplate of faith on by studying His Word. We we study and meditate on the rich depths of His nature as it's revealed in Scripture. And then that out of that, seek to live our lives accordingly. But it's also made up of love, that second element. Faith is that inward attitude toward God. This is our outward expression in the Christian life toward God and others. It's directed toward God first of all, but then out of that love for God, we seek to love other people. And that fits with what Scripture says is the greatest commandment of all. Jesus himself said, here's the greatest commandment, summarizes all the law of God, Matthew 22, verse 37, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and then he goes on to say, and then love others as well. There's the two sides of it. Romans 13, verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. It captures everything that God's moral law is all about, loving God and loving others. That's the breastplate, an indispensable piece of armor for us so that we're spiritually prepared. But there's a second piece of armor. Verse 8 continues, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So the helmet, we get how important that is, protecting the head, hopefully against some blow that might crush the skull. 
So supposedly, it's what our modern football helmets are to accomplish and motorcycle helmets, those kind of things. The helmet is important. Anytime I read this in Scripture about the helmet, I can't help but think of something that happened at Grace Community Church out there years ago. There was a guy who showed up at church on a Sunday wearing a helmet. It was a knight's helmet, a big metal helmet. And there's a lot of security guys there on the campus, and he's walking across the campus toward the auditorium. And, of course, that caught the attention of a couple of security guys. They followed him in. And uh, he came down the aisle to the row he wanted to sit at, and when he got there, he, he, he sort of uh, genuflexed, he, he, he bowed, and then he sat down and took his helmet off and set it down next to him. So one of the security guards came over and said, hey, how's it going? <laughs> what's your name? I'm uh, just curious, what, what's the helmet? And he literally answered, don't you know? It's the helmet of salvation. He got it from Scripture, but he was doing it literally. That's not the point. <laughs> okay. This is, this is a metaphor. It's symbolic. Notice that he says it's the helmet that's the hope of salvation. And the wording means it's hope that's directed towards salvation. But salvation is used in three different ways in Scripture. We're saved from our sin when we come to Christ. It's the salvation from sin. This is not talking about that. When we come to Christ in humble repentance and faith and seek His forgiveness, and He justifies us, it's not that. It's not the ongoing salvation of, called sanctification where we're growing and, and more and more coming to have victory over the power of sin in our lives. It's not that. This is referring to ultimate salvation, the consummation of our salvation, our glorification. That's what we're waiting for Not only will our souls be in heaven, but the day that our bodies will be resurrected and completely healed and glorified. If we know Christ, that's the climax of our salvation, the glorification of our bodies. Some verses on that, Romans 8, 23, we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Romans 13, 11, it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation, this ultimate salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. This is a great verse on eschatology. It says we're closer today to the Lord's return than we've ever been. Okay, there's our view right there. Philippians 3, it's where our citizenship is in heaven. That's our real home. So we wait for our Savior to come, and He's going to transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of His glory forever. And that blessed hope, according to 1 John, even prompts the pursuit of holiness in our lives now. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we'll see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. So this hope of future glorification encourages us in the battle. It encourages us in this enemy territory to resist the debilitating influences of this fallen world in this present evil age. And that hope even makes the trials of this fallen world seem light and endurable by comparison. I love this verse, Romans 8 verse 18. The sufferings of this present time, and there's lots of suffering, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us because that's forever. So just think about, for a second, pause right there, think about what makes up this defensive armor. 
faith, hope, and love. Those are the common three Christian virtues, the triad of basic Christian virtues. They summarize what our Christian life is all about in this fallen world. Pursuing, growing in our faith, in our hope, in our love. And it's the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation that equip the Christian soldier to resist the forces of darkness. But when one or both are lacking, that's when we start falling victim to sin and the error of our culture. And you know that in Scripture, in Ephesians 6, Paul fleshes out this whole idea of armor even more. I recommend you read that. I do like this summary of the main points of our passage that's actually in another letter. It's in Romans 13, Romans 13, verses 12 through 14. Here's a good summary of it all. He wrote to the church in Rome, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Why? Because that's not who we are. And put on the armor that's associated with light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing, not in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, not in sensuality, not in strife, not in jealousy. But when we put on the armor, we're putting on the Lord Jesus. That's the positive side. And negatively, we know that we have to battle our fallen humanness, the flesh. To have victory over that, we we must give it as little opportunity as possible. Make no provision for it, it says. Let me leave you then with some reminders that came to my own heart from this passage. Here's reminder number one. It's of the need for balance. I briefly mentioned it in the scripture, in the sermon. I'm referring to the balance that's necessary when we start talking about eschatology and future things, concern about the future. You see, due to wrong thinking, the Thessalonians were out of balance. It was absorbing their thoughts about the day of the Lord and fear of the future. Let's just call that eschatological excitement. Undue eschatological excitement. And that undue eschatological excitement is still a serious problem today for some. It's their focus and being prepared for the wrong things. So what's the cure? The cure? Everything that our passage said. Spiritual preparedness. Sobriety. Focus on spiritual things. Trusting God. Loving others. Rejoicing over all that God is doing and in the hope that we have in Him. I love this quote. Uh, it was just sent to me. Um, I don't remember if it was late last night or early this morning, but it, it fits what I'm saying here. It's from C.S. Lewis. He lived in a time where the threat of the future was war and the atomic bomb and so forth, and bombs falling and people dying from the war. But he had some very interesting wisdom for facing, let's just broaden it, facing an uncertain and even scary future. He says, if we're all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, well, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, like praying, in other words, serving the Lord, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends, and so forth. Not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about the bombs. They may break our bodies. Even a microbe can do that. 
but they need not dominate our minds, our hearts. There's balance necessary. Here's another reminder. It's a reminder of the mission of the church. Why, why do we gather? I mean, what's the purpose of the church? We're not trying to fix all the ills of the world. There's many things that we can't help you prepare for. We're here to help you prepare for the future, not necessarily be physically prepared or financially successful. It's to help you become spiritually prepared for whatever the world brings our way. So that does mean teaching you God's Word. It means shepherding you toward godliness. It means helping you grow in faith, hope, and love. Reminder number three, there's a connection here between this kind of spiritual growth and preparedness and our own assurance of salvation. This increases assurance. When we live according to our identity, we actually find some comfort and assurance. When we live a righteous and godly life and we're growing in faith, hope, and love, it brings assurance of salvation. And there's a long passage in 2 Peter that kind of summarizes that. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith. In other words, you come to faith in Christ, but now add to that, in your faith, add these things, moral excellence, and to that, add more knowledge, and in your knowledge, more self-control, and in your self-control, seek to persevere, and as you persevere, grow in godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and your brotherly kindness, more love, at the peak there. For if these qualities are yours, you are increasing, and they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. I like to make that personal. It renders me neither useless nor unfruitful. But the opposite is also understood there, right? If I'm not growing in those things, I can conclude that I am useless and unfruitful. But not if you're growing in these things and the true knowledge of Christ. For he who lacks these qualities, they're, they're blind, they're short-sighted, they're not prepared. They forgot their, about their purification from their former sins. They forgot that they were taken out of darkness and put into light. Therefore, brethren, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make certain about God's calling and choosing of you, His saving of you. How do you do that? As you practice these things, you will never stumble. That's a way of saying you're even going to grow in your assurance of salvation and your joy. As believers, it's not possible for us to be caught up in the day of the Lord and God's wrath as the church. But it is possible for us to in moments of time, because of our sin and our wrong thinking and not, not living out in a way that's worthy of our identity, we can start to even lose our assurance and doubt and fear increase. We're not going to face God's wrath, but we'll live our lives with a lack of assurance and become fearful that we are. Seek to grow in these things. Be, be prepared. and You'll even grow in your assurance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage that teaches us these two needs that we have so that we're ready no matter what comes, spiritually ready to be vigilant and equipped. Lord, help us with that. Strengthen us for that. We can't do it on our own. And Lord, I do pray for anyone here who doesn't even know Christ, has never come to that place of saying, yes, I, I want to be forgiven of my sin. I want to follow Christ. I want the gift of eternal life. Lord, open their hearts 
to turn from trusting in self and trusting in other things to trusting in Christ. Bring him to that place of faith and repentance for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.